Welcome to ACG Analytics Podcast. ACG specializes in the intersection of capital markets and public policy. Today, we will be discussing a broad range of issues as we examine the outlook for 2020, a new decade. With us today, we have our Director of International Policy, Chris Zerwinski, discussing trade, sanctions, and the strength of the dollar. Our Director of Policy, Rob Wagner, will bring his thoughts on housing finance reform for 2020, innovation in cannabis legislation, fintech implications for big tech, and later in the broadcast, our LATAM analyst, Brian Dean, will bring insight into the political and economic situations in Argentina, Venezuela, and Brazil. Finally, Director of Research, John East, will discuss healthcare and the 2020 election. Of course, be sure to follow us hourly on Twitter at ACG Analytics for daily insights or hourly insights regarding public policy and the political economy. Let us turn our attention to the subject of trade. Clearly, this has been a victory for the Trump administration. He has a number of trade agreements under his belt. We can go through them. Korea, USMCA, an agreement in principle with Japan, a recently signed phase one with China. None of these agreements are revolutionary, but trade is an instrument of foreign policy, unlike we've seen in previous administrations. I'd like to ask our lead trade, trade and macro analyst, Chris Zerwinski, what's in stall for 2020? The one area the president has, has threatened with, with, with tariffs, but has not acted, is Europe. Could we see a conflict with U.S. and Europe over trade? Thanks, David. I think that the United States and Europe are on course for a potentially rocky 2020. Uh, two things really stand out for me. The first being the Airbus case before the World Trade Organization. Of course, it is a relatively low amount of tariffs. However, when stacked upon further action from the United States, this cumulative action has an escalatory effect. The second thing, and I think the most important, is the French digital service tax, the DST. This could cause some problems as they are likely to continue to implement this while the OECD is crafting a multilateral framework. But in the meantime, the United States is looking at potentially putting tariffs on under Section 301, which was broadly used against China already. Will we see a European Union retaliation? So yes, uh, Phil Hogan, who is now the trade commissioner, has threatened that the entire European Union would retaliate if the United States were to impose tariffs against France. That is something that will develop as we get closer to such an event. And there's still things on the US side that must be done in order to get to that point. And in early January, we should begin to see the United States coalesce around its possible tariff increases. I mean, one thing we could say is that Ambassador Lighthizer, our U.S. trade rep, has some more free time. I guess he could focus on Europe. I'd say so. I think that um, the USMCA, which is a large win for the administration, took up months and months just with the Democrats. And before that, it took up over a year with Canada and Mexico. However, we have reached the finish line. And then, as you mentioned earlier, the United States and China, phase one obviously took quite a while and we came over numerous tariff hurdles along the way. Now, I do think that we will continue to negotiate with China over phase two in 2020, but certainly- What the is Lighthizer's- the difference between phase one and phase two? So phase one and on its face right now includes a lot of quid pro quo, if we will, and acceptance from the United States. 
that it will decrease some tariffs and also delay tariffs that were supposed to go into effect on December 15th. In return, the Chinese have agreed to increase their purchases of U.S. products. The number $200 billion, in addition to the current exports, has been thrown around by 2021. And of course, there are the actual structural reforms that are are, are minor at this point, but encompass financial services, intellectual property. Those are really the main aspects of the phase one deal, whereas phase two will in president's eyes, address larger structural reforms, such as the Made in China 2025 plan and um, other industrial growth initiatives. So I'm going to ask Chris for, for a, a view. Uh, do you believe we'll get a, a phase two structural reform uh, package done before the election? I don't think that the incentives are there for the United States or China to get to a comprehensive deal. It requires China giving up too much. And the United States, Trump can campaign on the fact that he was successful in gaining a phase one deal. I do think, however, David, um, that while a comprehensive deal is unlikely, phase two mini deals could be in the offing over the course of 2020. And that would include most likely some sort of tariff reduction from the United States as China reaches certain benchmarks for the purchases that they've committed to in phase one. So I I agree with you, Chris. I do not think we we will see the Chinese agreeing to offer fundamental reforms to their state-run capitalist economy. They've been running the country one way since 1949, and I don't expect them to change either. With that note, Let us pivot to the issue of sanctions. This has been the sanctions presidency. We have uh, the president was forced to sign CATSA, which is sanctions on Russia. We just had bills out of Congress overwhelmingly passed dealing with Chinese human rights. Administration has sanctioned numerous individuals throughout the Ukraine, Russia, Venezuela. Where do you see sanctions policy going in 2020? I think for the time being, sanctions policy largely out of the administration on Turkey and Russia uh, is going to be on hold. You did see the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, pass, and it did include some sanctions on Nord Stream 2, the pipeline. But apart from that, Senator McConnell did not include specific legislation. He did not tack on um, legislation that would specifically target Russia Russia or Turkey into the NDAA. And this, to me, is symbolic of the Senate's reluctance to step over the administration on sanctions policy. And I expect that to continue. I'd like to conclude by talking about what I think is one of the great black swans of 2020, and that is the strength of the dollar. The president has been a noted critic of the Fed, classic, hyper-classic jawboning the Fed down, uh, somewhat uh, difficult for Chairman Powell. Is it possible that the president turns his rhetoric on on the dollar and uses some unilateral tools that Treasury has to weaken the dollar? Yeah, we've been watching this for some time and expecting action for some time. Um, I think that the urgency of action on the dollar decreases somewhat with a China deal and the acceleration of global growth. But at the same time, I think that this narrative of a strong dollar hurts the president going into the 2020 presidential election. So I think it's more likely than not that we do, in fact, see the Treasury use the exchange stabilization fund um, to intervene in the currency. And the Fed would, the Fed most likely would, would participate in that intervention. Yes. So the, the Fed would likely match whatever Treasury does. Um, Thank you. Let us now pivot to Rob Wagner, our director of policy, where Rob has been a really a thought leader on, on several crucial investable issues. Of course, 
Number one has been an issue we've been following and analyzing for over a decade, housing finance reform. Rob, why will 2020 be the crucial year that Fannie and Freddie are transformed. So the last few months of 2019 have set up 2020 to be a big year for the GSEs. There's been several events on the judicial front, on the administrative action front, and what they're able to do with their capital retention that will have a big impact in 2020. So on January 10th, the Supreme Court will have a conference on the Collins v. Mnuchin case coming from the Fifth Circuit. Also on January 10th or around there, we will have a better idea on further proceedings in the Fairholme Court of Claims case. Also in January, on the administrative side, we're expecting FHFA to hire a financial advisor uh, sometime in January. Why, why is hiring the, the, the financial advisor important? That's important because it gives the FHFA the math behind the policy and the politics of this. It gives them a chance to have some outside validation. And, and they need that for what? I mean, I, my understanding is they'll, they'll begin the process in the RFP to, they were hired to, to prepare the regular. The, the regular, final amendment to the PSPAs. Exactly. So what, so what do we, that. I mean, what, why is that important? I mean, the, we have the famous third amendment with the sweep, which is the PSPA. We'll have a new amendment, the financial advisor to help prepare the regulator to negotiate with treasury. Is that correct? Correct. So we'll have, it's a very linear, linear process. All these, all these milestones that Clever has talked of are kind of gates to one another. So first we'll have the capital rule reproposal. We're expecting that sometime in the first quarter, January, February, maybe March. That will lead to the FHFA's negotiations with Treasury on the final PSPA amendment, which, will, which as we said, will have backing from uh, financial advisors' uh, recommendations. So all this is going to happen in the first six months. At the same time, if, if the Supreme Court does take the Collins case, uh, we'll know that, as you said, on January 10th, and it will be argued roughly in March, and the decision would come down from the court when? That will be in June or July. So we will see a convergence of actions on, on GSEs in the June-July time frame. So what I just heard you say saying that the capital rule should be done. That's the capital retention rule. How much capital do they need? Uh, Fannie and Freddie. We'll, we will also hear a decision on the Collins case, and then we will, thirdly, we will we will have hopefully a, a concluded negotiation somewhere after quickly after that on preferred stock purchase agreement. Is that correct? Correct. And to have that final PSPA amendment, you really need to have the litigation resolved, whether it's through a court decision or through settlement. Okay. So look, at 2020 is going to be the year of Freddie and Fannie. Uh, they will continue on their road to recapitalization. Uh, we will see, uh, hopefully, a settlement between litigants and the government. That's not only litigants in the Collins Fifth Circuit decision, the Court of Claims case. And at the same time, um, we will move further into a recapitalization later in the year. I'd like to now pivot to the discussion of cannabis, uh, an issue that has been highly lobbied, uh, both at the congressional and at the administrative level. Congress, the House, Rob, passed the SAFE Act. What is the SAFE Act? So the Safe Banking Act provides a safe harbor for financial institutions to service the cannabis industry without having to worry about the Department of Justice, basically federal law enforcement. It passed the House. It was a bipartisan bill in the House, am I correct? And in, there was a commitment to pass it in the Senate stalled in the Senate after a lot of uh, money was spent lobbying it by the industry. What happened? 
Sure. So Senator Crapo, the chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, uh, projected a vote on the State Banking Act. I think this is in September or so when he promises by the end of the year, by the end of this year. Obviously, that's not going to happen. However, I think some of the negativity on that bill stalling in the Senate Banking Committee has been overstated. Uh, I do believe that they continue to diligently work on this and try to resolve some of the issues, whether it's with interstate commerce and money crossing state lines uh, versus kind of criminal justice reform that the Senate Democrats are pushing for. And I do think we'll see some movement on this in the first quarter of next year. At the same time, you know, that we have uh, in the executive branch, the United States Department of Agriculture, Food and Drug Administration involved in cannabis hemp regulatory activities. Are they positive for the industry or negative for the industry? I would say they're fairly mixed bag. I think it's good to have some certainty out. They have an interim final rule. They extended the comment period on the on the final rule from December 30th to January 29th, and they hope to have this done for the 2020 growing period. That's on hemp. On hemp. This is for growing hemp in the States. So they have a default USDA program, and they also have a program which allows states to submit their own plans. Listen, at the same time, uh, you know, we had the vaping scare. Food and Drug Administration, you know, has been looking at C- the issue of CBD, its, its, its effects on health. Where is the regulatory process at the FDA? The FDA is notoriously slow and has continued to be on these issues. I think with the direction they're going, they put out some guidance recently. So I think that direction will likely lead next year into them prohibiting CBD from being added to food. Uh, There is a path forward, however, on dietary supplements, and beverages are kind of a weird middle ground between those two. We we think there will be progress both legislatively and administratively on uh, cannabis and hemp, but not revolutionary. I think so. It's definitely a slow pace until really the key issue is getting descheduling. Projection on that is that greater than 50% that the Congress deschedules it. There's no real appetite for them to do so right now. I think this would take a push from whether it's a new administration or if President Trump chooses to make this a major issue in his re-election, which has long been kind of a rumor and a fear in some Democrat circles. All right, let's go to technology. 2019, not a good year for big tech. Uh, Facebook tried to float a, a digital currency known as Libra, uh, rejected, I would say, uh, not only by the Congress, by the Treasury Department, and maybe even the Fed. How do, how do you assess the atmosphere, Rob, for big tech in Washington? Well, starting with Libra and Facebook, I think on digital currencies in general, we started to see some members of Congress, even bipartisan, put forth some policies that could help digital currencies blossom in the United States. That really ended when Libra came to the forefront, really lit a fire under House Democrats specifically, and even some Republicans who were very afraid of what a digital currency issued by someone on the scale of Facebook could do to U.S. monetary policy. So I think that you'll see Congress continue to scrutinize Libra into next year. You may see on the general front, or maybe even on the Libra front, a more friendly regulator like CFTC have have a breakthrough approval of Libra or just a general stablecoin. And also, I think maybe on the positive note, SEC Chair Jay Clayton last month uh, was at a conference with Gary Cohn, and he pledged to be more open-minded on tech. I think the big pivot here is, so as the U.S. makes a small crawl adjustment on crypto and uh, policy and fintech policy, again, it's, it's limited by what the U.S. can do. We have multiple regulatory agencies. With that, now let us pivot to an area that we think is going to have a lot of investor focus, 
in 2020, and that is Latin America. Today, I'd like to introduce Brian Dean, our lead analyst on all things Latin America. One of the tales of 2019, Brian, is the election of President Fernandez in Argentina. So for 2020, I mean, we're going to see uh, our, our Treasury Department, the IMF, and Argentina all doing somewhat of a dance. IMF has lent 50 plus billion dollars to Argentina. They're the senior creditor. In order for them to, to have a successful negotiation, they will need the cooperation with the largest shareholder of the United States, correct? That's absolutely correct. And if the Peronis administration of Fernandez continues to do what it has done for the last 50 years, would you expect that to be extremely difficult? It's going to be difficult at the IMF if Fernandez acts in a way that's overtly provocative. I think that the the U.S. administration will understand if there's some change in foreign policy, uh, at least rhetorically. But if uh, Fernandez engages in the type of activity that his vice president would be inclined to do, Christina Kirchner, then I think that they're going to have trouble securing the support of the United States, which is essential at the IMF. Of course, we have to point out that Christina Kirchner, the former president of Argentina, is the vice president. She makes her president of the Senate. Her son controls the lower house. She wants her son to accede to the presidency. Not a lot of incentives for uh, cooperating with the United States and with that agenda. No, and I think that this is going to be the key thing to watch in terms of the domestic political factors that are going to impact Argentina's ability to perform uh, over the next couple of years. I think it's all in the execution risk, and it's all in the risk that Cristina's presence and those of her uh, faction from within Baroness uh, Baronism impact the uh, the government. I think that in conversations with individuals in the Trump administration, you see that they have a nuanced view. They understand that the Fernandez's early success is going to be critical in preventing Christina from usurping the power of the presidency by controlling different uh, factions in Congress. Let's pivot now very quickly. Um, Give us a quick assessment on Brazil, on Bolsonaro's uh, leadership and stability. Well, Bolsonaro started off a little bit rough, and he saw his popularity ratings drop precipitously at the beginning. But surprisingly, Brazil and Bolsonaro have gotten acquainted with each other, and there's been a normalization. His approval ratings are still high enough that he would be elected today uh, if there were elections and he seems to have consolidated the support of the largest bloc in Congress for the economic agenda that is being pursued by his Minister of Economy, Paulo Guedes. So we're, we're optimistic on U.S.-Brazil. We're optimistic on the Brazilian investment climate uh, under Bolsonaro. Well, yes, I, there's an overall optimism. You've even seen that some of the growth projections increasing in recent weeks. Brazil's uh, risk rating has gone down. There seems to be a alignment politically between the leadership in the Congress from the center and the uh, and the minister of the economy that is pushing through this market leaning agenda, including pension reform, which passed. This year will include some version of tax reform and some administrative and budget reforms. And these will be important, too, and they have a good chance of passing, but they're no means that by no means a slam dunk. Okay, let's pivot uh, very quickly again to Venezuela. Uh, we've taken a leadership role, ACG, in inducing, uh, introducing the Venezuelan opposition to the Trump administration. Sadly, Maduro is still in, in power. Uh, I myself don't see an exit for Maduro in 2020. 
What is your assessment? Well, you're not alone there, David, and, and nor is there uh, a lot of factors that are lined up that could support a transition anytime in the foreseeable future. The United States, however, remains uh, highly committed to the framework set up through the interim president, Juan Guaido, and his capacity as the president of the National Assembly, which gives him the constitutional authority to be recognized as president. However, the overestimation done by the United States and the Venezuelan opposition on the their ability to turn the military has been proven disastrous. So we're in what, you know, you could call a minor quagmire right now in Venezuela. Thank you, Brian. We'd like to continue today's podcast uh, with a discussion uh, with John East. John is our director of research. His deep knowledge of the federal process, both legislatively and regulatory, is unparalleled. Uh, with John, we'll be ta- we're taking a deep dive uh, first on healthcare, and then we will move more into the issues really of 2020, which are impeachment process in the House. Talk about a little bit about what that means for the Senate, and then we'll discuss the 2020 uh, general election and get John's uh, in- insight into that. One of John's famous written pieces. Uh, in 2016, in September, was Trump a path to to victory? John took us through how Trump could win, and he did win. So, with that introduction, John, I'd like to talk about healthcare first. As I said, in the, in an election year uh, with uh, impeachment added on the top, it's going to be very very difficult to move any legislation, even if it's bipartisan. Uh, John, I would like to pivot to the question of drug pricing. Drug pricing is a political populist issue. It is interesting that normally the big pharma had a lot of clout in Washington. That seems diminished. How do you, John, how do you assess the political chances on this issue? Well, I think the administration wants to show movement in the area. Uh, They have also been working on a related area, but distinct, which is drug reimportation. They used today to reemphasize that they were going to focus on this issue. The administration can, at the margins, try to make reforms that have an effect on drug pricing. Many of them will probably uh, be held up in court. CMS, which is the Centers for uh, Medicare and Medicaid Services, um, has thrown out some proposals. It is unclear if, if CMS has the statutory authority. At the end of the day, a lot of the change has to come from Congress. And that's why it's important that the, that Grassley and Wyden with the Senate Finance Committee bill have tried to focus on pricing and transparency through the supply chain. I wouldn't rule out that effort yet, but they will be working in tandem with the administration. The trick here is to try to get McConnell on board without losing Wyden and other Democrats. But certainly the administration will uh, make whatever rule changes it can at the margins, even if So let's look on the campaign trail for a lot of rhetoric on drug pricing. Let's move on, look into 2020 on the political side. Uh, Today, uh, the House of Representatives is undertaking a debate on articles of impeachment. How do you assess impeachment's impact on President Trump up to now? Give me a lens to analyze it compared to the Clinton and, and perhaps even the Nixon years. Well, you know, I was not around for the Nixon years, and I was still a teenager for the Clinton years, but I do think this impeachment is different, and I certainly wasn't around for President Johnson in 1868, but each impeachment has had its own political logic for the time. This one, I think, is a little bit different. It is a foregone conclusion, so it has been less interesting. It also doesn't have 
etc. Uh, but also, Democrats have been calling for President Trump's impeachment since actually before he took the oath of office. I think that's sort of a problem for Democrats. The other thing, and, I, and I'm fairly certain that Speaker Pelosi uh, resisted impeachment for so long, at least in part because of this, we know that President Trump's approval rating would take a hit when impeachment was announced. There's no way around that. The question is, how long is that hit sustained? When the Senate finds President Trump not guilty, as most expect it will do, and so do I, one would expect that President Trump's approval would rebound. It has already been rebounding, probably because of other issues related to the economy, related to uh, announcements regarding trade, which are beneficial. But also, importantly, it doesn't really matter when, you, when people tout national polls. It doesn't matter if support for impeachment of President Trump goes from 45 to, let's say, 100 percent in California. It doesn't matter because those electoral votes are already locked in. What matters is what support for impeachment looks like in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in Iowa, and a few other states. And in a lot of the swing states, there just hasn't been that much support for impeachment. John, uh, polling data, it's interesting, polling data for the president has improved dramatically since impeachment uh, began. Uh, he's up over everyone, including Biden, in the swing states. Is that accurate? That is accurate. President Trump's approval rating has increased over the course of the impeachment. People have started to make up their minds, and there's been other good news for President Trump. So people, when they evaluate whether they want President Trump for office or not, don't look solely at the impeachment question. They look at a range of data. Every voter makes up his or her own mind differently. But very few voters who are persuadable look only at the issue of impeachment and the evidence for or against President Trump on that question. Interestingly, John, uh, to sum up, I spoke with a second-term a congressman from Wisconsin, and I asked him how impeachment uh, was impacting his constituents. He said the top 20% that hate the president are more intensified, and the 20% that love the president are more intensified. So we, we, it, it, we are seeing intensity ratchet up, and we, we absolutely may see a historic turnout. I'd like to pivot into what I think is people are not focused on enough as a black swan event for 2020, and that is control of the Senate. I mean, look, the Republicans control the Senate uh, today by three seats. Very important historical uh, moment. Very rarely in the history of the Republic has one party controlled the House, the Senate, and the executive branch. And as Mitch McConnell uh, says himself, the Senate's mission is to stop bad things from happening. Or as the founding fathers said, it's to cool the passions of the House. So, John, we, we must, in 2020 keep our clients and friends really appraised of this development. Everyone is going to be focused naturally on the presidential, but Senate races really could have a dramatic effect on markets. So, uh, John, tell me, uh, let's let's go through the races. How how does the uh, uh, Republican Party keep control? Well, if the Democrats win three seats, there'll be a tie in the Senate. And whoever wins the presidency will be able to break that tie. That's assuming that they don't lose Alabama. So if President Trump wins re-election, Democrats need to pick up four Senate seats. And if they lose Alabama, and it looks like they're very likely to lose Alabama with Senator Sessions getting back into the race, then they'll need five seats. 
There are three seats where they stand a very good opportunity to pick up. And the first one is Colorado, the second one is Maine, and the third one is Arizona. But Maine and Arizona are swing states. The Republican Party is definitely focusing on turnout in Arizona, and Senator Collins' conduct is going to be scrutinized over the course of impeachment. She's most vulnerable because she loses support among Republicans if she votes to impeach, and she loses support among left-leaning independents who have historically supported her uh, if she votes to acquit. The other two races that people should focus on are North Carolina, where Senator Tillis has a well-funded primary challenger, forcing him to spend money in what could be a divisive primary election that will make it harder to win North Carolina. North Carolina uh, historically has switched control for one of its Senate seats every election for about 40 years. Senator Tillis is a freshman. But at the presidential level, North Carolina is still slightly favored to go Republican. The other sleeper race is in Alaska. Senator Sullivan is also a freshman Republican. And the governor there is facing a recall election. The date of that recall election, if it is held, has not been set, but could potentially be coterminous with the presidential election. That might be bad for Senator Sullivan, who has been outraised, uh, at least in the last quarter filings, not uh, in terms of uh, money in the bank, by his primary challenge. But so the Democratic path, once you get past Colorado and then maybe Arizona and Maine, looks more difficult. North Carolina, maybe Alaska. Democrats are talking a lot about Georgia. One of their Senate seats uh, may be another divisive primary battle because the governor uh, nominated someone for the seat who will take office in December, who is not beloved by the base. The question is, can she turn that uh, antipathy around in the short time she has before the general election and before primary filing deadline? So we could conceivably see a 50-50 Senate making control of the presidency decisive. Nothing said, I believe Republicans will probably hold on by a seat or two. I'm with you, John, on that that theory. I believe that Martha McSally, the first woman who commanded Air Force Fighter Squadron, is uh, she has no primary opponent like she did last time, where she narrowly lost. She's better organized. I think she wins in Arizona. To quote Mitch McConnell, Susan Collins is the only person, Republican, who could win in Maine. Uh, she's a, an institution up there. So I, I, I think Republicans will keep control. So what I'd like to encourage everyone is please... Tune in to our future podcasts. Uh, if you're cur- if you want to learn more about ACG Analytics, reach out to Meili Wong, and her email is wong at acg-analytics.com, or you can reach out to her by phone, 202-327-8100. And we, our website has a lot of information. You can see the kind of research we've been providing investors over the past decade. I'd like to thank our brilliant analysts for providing their insight. 2020 will be a year of unprecedented instability. Of course, we really enjoy people that follow us on Twitter at ACG Analytics for our daily or even hourly insights regarding public policy, capital markets, and the political economy. Thank you for joining us today. With that, we wish everyone a happy holiday season. Look forward to speaking with you on a one-on-one bespoke basis. Good day.